church. Uh, if you've got your copy of God's Word, let's open up to the book of 1 Samuel. We're in chapter 4 this morning. Um, as Matt said earlier, it is Mother's Day, and if you didn't know that, Bubba, you are in big trouble right now. Um, listen, uh, Mother's Day is just one of those holidays, falls on a Sunday, and um, honestly, like, I, I, it's just a struggle for me every year pastorally, not because I'm against moms, okay, but... Motherhood is one of those things that it finds so many of you in different places on the spectrum. And there are people that actually avoid church altogether on Mother's Day because it is hard and it is, it is difficult. So way back in 2012, I came across uh, a writer and she had sort of written this, uh, I would just call it a, a prayer or a recognition, and, and it was helpful for me pastorally back in 2012, and it is still helpful for me today. And I'm going to read this over us before we get into our text, uh, just as an aside, in recognizing today, trying to bring honor to today, but also not ignore the reality of how difficult today can be. So listen to these words, listen to this truth. To those of you who gave birth this year to their first child, or any child, we celebrate you today. To those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are here in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains in a messy house, disorderly house, we appreciate you. To those who experienced loss this year through miscarriage, failed adoptions, running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk a hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes and prods and tears and disappointments, we walk with you. Forgive us when we say foolish things. We don't mean to make it harder than it is. To those who are foster moms and mentor moms and spiritual moms, know that in this place you are needed. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate that. To those that have disappointment and heartache and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year or in previous years, we grieve alongside you. To those who experienced abuse at the hands of their mother, we acknowledge your experience. But to those who lived through the driving test and the medical test and the overall testing of motherhood, know that we are a better church because of what you endured and what you went through. To those of you who are single today and long to be married and mothering your own children, we mourn and sit beside you as life has not yet gone your way in the, in the moment and in the time in which you would wish it. To those of you who are step-parents, we walk alongside you with very complex issues and, and paths at hand. To those of you who envisioned lavishing love on your grandchildren, yet that dream is not to be, we grieve alongside you. To those of you that will have empty nest in the upcoming year, we grieve or rather rejoice with you. <laughs> to those who have placed children up for adoption, to those who are pregnant in this very moment with new life, both expected and unexpected, we sit and anticipate alongside you the good days ahead. To all the females here today, know this, you are made in the image of God. And our God loves you and he cares for you and he ascribes and gives you worth and he gives you dignity in wherever he has you. But know this truth right now. The highest calling and place for you to be in your life is not motherhood. The highest calling is faithfulness to a risen Savior 
who has given you an identity not wrapped up in being a mom or missing your mom or longing for things or anticipating for things, but a God who knows right where you are and he has called you to be faithful to him. This, friends, is our highest, most worthy calling for us to pursue. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us and then let's jump into 1 Samuel. Father, I pray that in these next few moments that you would speak to us through your word, challenge us, make us new. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Listen, I grew up in East Texas, and I don't know if this is an East Texas thing uh, or not, but uh, I remember when I was in intermediate school, we'd go to school, everybody had their backpacks on, and uh, it was a big deal, like third or fourth grade, uh, out in the, in the piney woods of East Texas, that you had a keychain attached to your backpack. And on that keychain, if you were lucky, you would attach, some would attach, if their parents would let them, they would attach what was known as just a rabbit's foot. You know what I'm talking about? Is that an East Texas thing, or did y'all do that up here in, in the fifth and fourth? Okay. Well, in East Texas, uh, they figured out how to grow rabbits that were rainbow color fur and deep blue and green. Like you could get them in any color you wanted to. And it was a lucky rabbit's foot. And the idea was you would bring the rabbit's foot out when a big decision was coming your way and you would rub the rabbit's foot, like, you know, uh, say this incantation, cast a spell, I don't know. And, uh, and you would wish and you would vie for, for good luck. Well, these rabbit feet had been marketed for years prior to whenever I got into intermediate school. And they were used sort of as a trinket to, to wish good luck and to, and to have favor. And I found this uh, article that was written this past week by a British uh, newspaper person written in 1908. And the company was a company located in America that was advertising good luck and trying to sell these rabbit feet all the way in London, England. And I want to read for you how they advertise this because this blew me away. It said here, it lies, the left hind foot of a rabbit killed in a country churchyard at midnight during the dark of the moon on Friday the 13th by a cross-eyed, left-handed, red-headed, bow-legged man on a white horse. That seems quite ridiculous, but to know that that was written in 1908, and I believe in this day you can at least go out to East Texas and go to your local gas station and still purchase a rabbit foot. And you can use it for whatever you want. But here in this text this morning, we have this instance where we're going to see the people of God not grab a rabbit foot out, but they're going to do something with some religious material, some things that are very sacred. And what they're going to try to do is they're going to try to put God in a box and sort of demand him to respond in a certain way. And then we're going to see the utter futility of God's people trying to manipulate and to stick God inside a box to act and perform the way that they want him to act. And so we begin reading in verse 1 where the text says this, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, and they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Now, a couple of things are, are going on. When we pick up in verse 1 of, of chapter 4, we're really picking up where it left off last week at the end of 3, where God begins to promise to speak to Samuel. Israel begins to hear the voice of the Lord through the prophet Samuel. And then God makes a couple of promises. He says, listen, first of all, I'm going to destroy the house of Eli, and I'm going to punish the wickedness of the sons, but my word is going to go forth, and I'm about to do something. And he uses this really strange, like peculiar 
familiar word in the English that we transliterate out is, I'm going to make them tingle with anticipation and with great excitement at the end of chapter 3. And then it picks up and he says the word that God was speaking to Samuel is still being spoken to through Samuel as he speaks to Israel. But Israel has a problem here. You see, we begin to identify that Israel, though small, but they are mighty. They are surrounded by people who only know one thing, conquer or be conquered. And at this point within Israel's history, the the Philistines were sort of on the rise. and, And these were some of the most barbaric, some of the most vulgar individuals and groups of people that you could ever meet. These were men and and people that just wished to dominate everyone that wasn't them. And their aim in life was to conquer. Otherwise, they were going to be conquered themselves. These guys were, were savages. One Old Testament scholar, he just said they were, this is harsh, but they were a scourge on the population of humanity. They were really awful people as a whole in every sense that we know from biblical historical history. And here they were surrounding the Israelites. And they're about to go do battle. And they're about to go to war. These Philistines were, were hostile and, and cultured. They had no respect for, for what God's commands and his principles were. And in fact, they were openly antagonistic about these things. And then pick up in verse 2, he says, These Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed at this moment about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Just meaning this, they they got a whooping, and it was a pretty bad whooping. And they got it handed to them and had to go back home. And they began to sort of ask themselves, what is it that, why, why was it that we were just defeated? I thought we were God's people. Then you pick up in verse 3, and he says, And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Therefore let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from here, from Shiloh, that it may come amongst us and save us from the power of our enemies. So we learn a couple of things about the the mindset of the Israelites in this moment. They knew that they were beaten, not because the Philistines were militarily better, but they knew they were beaten because the Lord had risen up against them to show them defeat and to teach them some humility and to show them what they were supposed to be doing all along was being dependent upon the God who had sustained them all these years. But notice what begins to happen. They come to the camp, and notice in verse 3 what it says, who came together. It says the elders. The elders of the tribe, they, they come together, and they begin to ask this question, why has the Lord defeated us? Showing first and foremost, they, they got the first part of it right, but what they couldn't understand was, why did he do it? And why did he allow calamity and and heartache? And and why did he allow death amongst our people? You see, these were a people, the Israelites, who were acquainted with hardship. They were acquainted with grief and, and difficulty. They had experienced injustices for two centuries prior up to this point. They knew what it was like to be forgotten and to feel forsaken. And they understood that. But it also would have been quite reasonable For the Israelites to go, we know why God did this, and this is because of the sins of the two sons of Eli, who defamed the house of the Lord, who who did all kinds of immoral and evil and wicked things. We are being punished because of those who led us. That would have been a just cause and a just reason. 
This idea of the Ark of the Covenant, what Old Testament scholars and even Jewish historians would would argue and contend for is that this covenant, it was suggestive of of this ark, that it was symbolically representative of, of the presence of the Lord. And so where the ark went, the Lord went. And in fact, in this moment, the Israelites would have remembered Numbers 10, 35, and I'll put it on the screen, who it just simply says, wherever the ark was sent out, Moses said, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Meaning this, more often than not in the Old Testament, God would send his presence and he would send his blessing, even in the midst of of battles and conflict, he would send his ark. And as long as they had the ark out present, that God would bless their hands and they would prosper and and all the things that they were attempting to do, God would have his hand on it. But this time, they begin to ponder the question. And so they send off about 20 miles to the east of them. And we pick up in verse 4 and he says this, So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim on the top of this ark would have been these two uh, angelic-looking statues that existed. It's called the the mercy seat. And and there is where it is said that God's presence would would reside on the ark as a physical reminder, as a visible reminder, directly tying itself to that. And so they go, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant. Now, as we begin to read on, we begin to notice something strange that begins to happen. In verse 5, it says, As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And and when the Philistines heard that the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned of the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from this power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. And then notice how the Philistines began to talk to one another. Men, take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men. And now is the time to fight. So the Philistines fought. And then notice what it says even in the presence of the ark, and Israel was defeated. And they fled. And every man to his home, and there was a great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. 30,000. This is after already losing another 4,000, and the ark of God was captured. But yet, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they died. So a couple of things happen in the text. One, God honors his promise to put to death the two sons, which God said he would do earlier on. And so he, he executes justice literally on these two sons for defaming the name of the Lord and, and, and bringing uh, calamity in the midst of the temple and all kinds of evil and immoral things. And so God fulfills his promise there in this moment. But we're left with this conundrum, if you will, of, well, with Numbers 10 is true, that God's presence goes with the ark and the Israelites go and they gather the, the ark and they bring it out to battle and yet they just get a slacking on the battlefield. They lose. 
So one of two things is true. Either God's a liar and he doesn't follow through with his promises, or there's something in the text that we're not quite seeing and we're not quite able to discern why, why is this happening. So last night uh, I do what I usually try to do with my wife. I'll have her read the text or read over my notes. And I said, Haley, uh, just tell me what you see. And, and what, usually what happens, nine times out of ten, she sees within like 30 seconds what takes me about 40 books to go through to go, oh, like I fi- finally I figured it out. And one of the things that Haley kept saying, she said, I'm, I'm reading through it, but what I, what I keep seeing is, is in verse one, I'm hung up on that, on that beginning part. And God keeps repetitively saying this, and we saw this in the end of chapter 3. So I want you to go back and I want you to look at verse 1 because this is key in understanding what just happened. And he says, And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. The word of Samuel came to Israel. Now Samuel was the, the prophet that spoke to the people on behalf of God, and God spoke through him. And one of the jobs of the prophet was to speak the word of the Lord to the people, and then the people would then go and listen. And so you see in this moment that the word was coming to Samuel, and he was speaking it to Israel. But they weren't listening. And how do we know they weren't listening? Well, the context is the clue, and and it's the king in this moment. And I want you to jump back down to verse 3. Where it says this, and the people come to the camp after the first slacking, and the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us? Therefore, let us bring the ark of the covenant to the Lord from Shiloh. Notice in the very beginning of verse 3, who's absent in the text. It says the elders come together to make a decision, but Samuel is noticeably absent in the midst of this conversation. And so one of the things that's happening here within the narrative of chapter 4 is what God is doing is he's teaching the Israelites a lesson. He's reminding them that God is speaking through his prophets and it is better for you to listen to what Samuel is saying rather than to get lost in meaningless, religious, perfunctory motions. To be concerned about the temple and and those things is, is something that we ought to care about. But what he's saying is that God is speaking to Samuel. The word of the Lord, excuse me, is coming to Samuel. And you, as a people, are not listening. You're still trying to do things in your own way. And you're still trying to apply your own very best wisdom to scenarios and situations. And what these elders are learning is that even their very best intentions lead them down a pathway that ultimately ends in 30,000 people's lives being lost. Because what God is doing in this moment is he's reminding his people that it's the word that is the most important. The word of the Lord through Samuel, but the word of the Lord has been, that has been given to us in this. One scholar put it this way, he said, the goal in our study is not to master the word, but rather to be mastered by it. The goal is not just <coughs> knowing and understanding. The goal is not just having the right doctrine, though those are good things that we contend for. The, the goal is, is, is not just seeking knowledge and, and recall, though all of those things are, are preferred and we want. The ultimate goal when we read is not that we would ever actually master what's in these 66 books, but rather that we would be mastered ourselves by what's in them. It's the thing that separated Samuel 
from Eli's sons is that Samuel sought to be a, a prophet. He sought to be a, a priest that was mastered by the word of God rather than seeking to master it and read books. And we should read books and we should pursue theology and we should run after those things diligently and, and hard as we can. And, and then we should focus on being persuasive to the world as we get the right doctrine and as we apply that to the right practice. All of those things are necessary and wonderful. But the main thing is that we would be mastered by this book so that when God speaks, we would act upon it. That we'd be faithful to what he's called us to do. It's why in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, the word of the Lord of Samuel came to all of Israel. God is speaking to his people through his word. God is speaking to Travis today through his word. And so the problem then comes up as they seek to bring the ark And they bring it out before them. What was happening was the people, or the Israelites in particular, were attempting to manipulate and control God within their own context. They were pulling out their rabbit foot, so to speak. Bringing the ark out in this moment when when what God was seeking to tell them was you don't need the presence of the ark when you have the word of the Lord. You don't need good luck. You don't need superstition. You don't need a, a multicolored rabbit foot. You don't need karma. You don't need any of those things when you have the word of God. The word is coming to his people through the text, through the scripture. And so we speak and we study it and we learn it and we yield to it. But they got lost in this attempt to sort of box God in within their own terms, not seeking the Lord. You see, what's noticeably absent there is not just the conversation with Samuel, but, but the elders saying this, not just simply claiming a, a promise that God had given, but all the while ignoring the call for obedience and faithfulness that God was giving them all these other years and just ignoring those things, if you will. And so God allows them to experience destruction. He allows them to experience defeat. He allows them to ultimately end up losing the very ark itself. They got lost in their religion. Friend, this morning, could it be said of you that you are just like the Israelites lost in your religion? What I mean by that is is that... The contemporary application of this is not that we're carrying around rabbit's feet, though I think there was one gentleman in the first service that held his rabbit foot up uh, in the middle of it. The best part about it was he didn't know where I was going with that. And so (laughs) afterwards I had to go like, are you okay, man? Like I kind of went at you kind of hard unintentionally. I didn't know you had one. But the idea is that we don't show up with rabbit's feet or the ark, but, but don't we bargain with God? If you do this for me, I'll do this. Or we sometimes think that if I can bargain with him, if I come to church enough, that maybe I'll, I'll, I'll have favor with him. If I, if I give enough, God will be gracious to me. And, and yeah, maybe he is. He, he's a slow to anger, rich in, in love and mercy, full of compassion, kind, benevolent God. Absolutely, he does do those things. But not one of those things holds me up for salvation. Not one of those things ultimately saves me. Not one of those things ultimately delivers me from my sin. Only Christ can do those things. But we bargain with him. As a student of history, I came across an article this past week. It was talking about the German military in World War I. 
In the German army in World War I at the time, there was an inscription written on every army belt that the soldiers wore, and later some wore these in World War II, and the inscription was the phrase, Gott mit uns, simply in German means God is with us. God is with us on our cause to conquer the world. God is with us on our cause to to murder millions upon millions and to inflict damages. God is with us. Listen to me. There are people in this world within our lifetime, sometimes they go to church and, and they exist within our country and around the world that will do wicked things in the name or believing that God is with them. But God never will ask us to do something that is found contrary to his word. He will never ask us to to speak in confusing ways that we don't know that he has not already revealed. It's why he says, and the word of the Lord was coming to Samuel as he spoke it. And the word of the Lord is coming to us each and every time that we come before his word. And he speaks to us and he changes us. But I think more so, and we finish through verse 10 and 11, one of the things that I think that we deeply see that's rooted here within the text is this idea that the power of God cannot be manipulated or manufactured by human activities and human will. That I can't sell you something like the power of God. I can't market the power of God. I can't box it up and and send it to you in Amazon Prime and give it to you in two days. Like, I can't do those things. We cannot create the power of God. God's power is His power. And so the posture for the believer this morning is simply this. We we have just been called to, to be faithful. To be faithful to his text because we believe that that one of the things that God calls us to is biblical faithfulness. It's one of our core values. And we pursue that biblical faithfulness. And and if God shows his power, and if he shows it in a a way that we are just in awe, that he makes our our, our ears and our eyes tingle because of of what the Lord God is doing, then we, we say, look at what our God has done. Look at what he did through his people here. What a blessing it is uh, last week to introduce over 10 new people for, for membership, to baptize three this, this morning. It's like we almost got you all the way under without hitting your head on the backside. Like it was bound to happen to someone. You're just too tall for us this morning to handle. But it's a testimony to a life that had been changed because of, because of God's power in his life. Because God making the change and and being the one that does the pursuing and being the one that that does the change so that all we can do is say, look at what God did. We be faithful to what he's called us to do, but then to say, look at what our God did in the midst of this. We cannot take credit. We cannot manipulate. We cannot conjure up. We cannot fake God's power. His power is his power alone. But I think more so than that in understanding that truth is this idea of this punishment and this chastisement that takes place in the life of God's people is a reminder to us this morning that you cannot put your trust in God's promises towards you and at the same time ignore God's demands for holiness in your life. You can't do it. Sure, you can do it maybe for a little while. 
And maybe God allows you to persist in some of those things. And maybe nothing happens to you. But listen to me. God's best for you and for me is walking and pursuing obedience with him and pursuing faithfulness. Because I believe wholeheartedly that God wants his people made in his image to flourish, spiritually speaking. He wants to see them do well and to flourish. But that human flourishing that comes, comes with a price. Ultimately, the price that Christ paid on the cross. And then, now where I come in is that flourishing is wrapped up in the obedience of Jesus as he works that obedience out in my life and through my life as I pursue faithfulness and obedience and doing what God has called me to do and be on mission where God has called me to be on mission. Too many of us want the promises of God without the obedience that comes with it. We claim this and all the while we ignore the demands that he has for us over here to be like someone, to pursue him, to be holy for he is holy. Do you know that God this morning, he wants you to be holy like him? And he also understands this, that you're incapable of any level of holiness apart from him working in you. And so he gives you holiness to grow the holiness, to, to make the holiness flourish, like he implants that in you through the Spirit of God. And, and that holiness that you have, that pursuit of right living comes from God, and then God's going to be the one that grows it. We nurture it, we cultivate it, we work with it, but at the end, ultimately, it, it was given by God, it's grown by God, and it blooms by God. Because it's all about God. And it's all about his power, and it's all about his perfection on display. One of my favorite missionaries to read about is a young lady by the name of Amy Carmichael, who many of you may or may not have heard of. She's famous within missionary circles, but I feel like too often she gets overlooked. And one of the areas that our church is seeking to grow in is we uh, pursue God's role for our church in the context of human trafficking here in Fort Worth. Amy Carmichael's testimony is really one that is quite pertinent to us that we can learn a lot from. Amy grew up in places like Manchester, England. She grew up in places like Belfast. Uh, Her dad was bankrupt at an early age. She grew up poor. In the late 1800s, she died about 1950 or so, but she grew up not having hardly anything, but had a heart for God, and God had cultivated that heart. Well, one day, God saves her miraculously, and and God calls her to salvation, and then God begins a process with Amy where he eventually calls her to the mission field. And the first place she goes is Japan. She goes over there for a little while, comes back. She deals with some sicknesses and, and different things. Ultimately, God leads her to India. Bangalore, Sri Lanka, and she ends up giving about 55 years of her life overseas in India in particular. And what Amy did on those 55 plus years that she was over in India is her mission was to rescue girls who had been sold off to the temple, who had been human trafficked. And her goal and her aim was to rescue them and to meet the needs in their lives and then to proclaim the gospel to these Hindus and these Buddhists and to share with them about the good news of Jesus being on mission as she rescued them from the evil that was before them. And so first she started with the girls and then in about 1918 she'd open up a home just for boys because boys were being trafficked as well. And she gave her life for this. 
And the question before us is why would someone do something like that? How could someone do something like that? And the answer is simply this. For Amy Carmichael and so many other people, God was not just a trinket in a rabbit's foot they put in their pocket for good luck. But God in his goodness encompassed every single thing that they did. From how they thought, from how they spoke, by how they felt, by what they did, what they didn't do. God encompassed it all. And Amy understood that the gospel was not about reducing God just to the confines of of our hearts. And though we're okay with that statement, but we understand the gospel is more than that. The gospel is not about you bringing Christ into your life. The, The gospel is really about Christ bringing you into his life. Into his flourishing, into his kingdom. Not your kingdom, because your kingdom this morning, my friends, I promise you, is too small. It is too small to contain God. And it cannot keep him. And it's why we get it backwards. The story of the gospel is this. God in his goodness is bringing us into his story. And it's only when we get inside his story that we then begin to find meaning and purpose and a place. This morning, could it be that God is calling some of you into his kingdom? Maybe it's through salvation and giving your life to Christ. The Bible says it's as simple as repent and believe and you are saved. Not much more to that than that. Repent of your sins and know that that God is just, will punish you of your sins, your unrepentant sins. God will punish you according to the scripture. But the Bible says that when you call upon the name of the Lord, repent of our sins, believe in him by faith and you shall be saved. And maybe there are some of you here today that you've gotten caught up in religion and you, you never knew the Lord to begin with, but you could be like those Israelites trying to bring out an ark and bring out your, your, your lucky rabbit foot. But maybe there's some of you here today that maybe you haven't been baptized by immersion. We're Baptists, if you didn't know that, if you forgot it. We don't talk about it a lot, but we are Baptists. And the reason why we're Baptists is because we believe the Scriptures faithfully teach that after profession of faith that we enter into the baptistry waters and we are immersed as Jesus was immersed. That's what that word baptizo means. And it is our act, our first act of obedience after salvation. It doesn't save us. Doesn't lay claim to our life. It's a testimony before God's people. There's some symbolic things, a lot of things that happen in the midst of that. And maybe God's blessing in your life is being held out and held back because you're just simply unwilling to walk in obedience. And that next step for you is is baptism. But maybe here today there are some of you that just need some time with the Lord to sort of sit and, and to rest and to sort of be in his presence. And so... Let's do that now as as we respond in a time of song and singing and as we attempt to make much of Jesus as we conclude our service.